Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to another installment of New Books and Poetry's month-long celebration of the chapbook, Chapbook Palooza. I am your host, Jen Fitzgerald. Metasama is the author of La Animal and Other Creatures by Miel Books in 2015, After Sleeping to Dream After After from Nuzot Press in 2014, Nocturne Trio, Yes Yes Books 2012, and South of Here, published under her legal name, Lydia Melvin, by New Issues Press. Her poems, fiction, and creative nonfiction essays have been published in Air Apparent, Valley Voices, Puerto de Sol's Black Voices series, Literary Hub, Quile, Blue Stem, Apogee, All About Skin, edited by Gina Ortiz and Rochelle Spencer. Please excuse this poem, 100 Poets for the Next Generation, edited by Lynn Melnick and Brett Fletcher Lauer, among others. She has served as special guest editor for Reverie, Black Camera, Red Leaf Poetry Journal, and North American Review. She serves on the advisory board for Black Radish Book and the board of directors at Cave Canem and Vida, and is a fellow at Black Earth Institute. Thelma is the director of the Center for Women's Writers and an assistant professor and director of creative writing at Salem College. Welcome, Meta. Thank you, Jen. Thank you for having me here. Of course. So before we start talking about the collection, I want to encourage our readers to purchase a physical copy of this chapbook. The artwork and layout are stunning. Did you work with the press on these aesthetic choices? I did. Erin um, Lorsong, who runs Miel, uh, sent me quite a few illustrations um, and asked my opinion about them. I was surprised when I got a copy of the book, however, to see that she'd pulled those visual images into the book itself, into the pages of the book, and was really quite um, just stunned and startled and excited by just how incredibly beautiful looking the book is. Yes, no, it absolutely is. It was one of the the first things that struck me about it. They did a good job. Um, For our first poem, would you please read Realism, A Poetics on page 31? Yes. Realism of poetics, it begins with an epigraph from Phyllis Wheatley, Imagination, Who Can Sing Thy Force. The woman's fingers are alternately two praying mantis in mid-fight, alternately the skittish legs of a rock crab, blue limbs swishing left and back to blue mirages of packed sand, untrammeled hole, free. No life forms penetrating the small world, a hole waiting to be dug, or ultimately, the world is a giant fissure of blue music, classical notes clinking hole after hole into a theory of what? What does the mantis pray for? What does the crab skirt from? What is this life? A force of what will happen to this child I imagine living with me, with his child thoughts and his innocent ways naive, untouched? Is that naive to think a child I could birth? untouched by the world before its birth. I think I want to at the least imagine that tiny world is somewhere I can imagine 
many days with this naive child, its cupy face, a successful imagined birth. It gets hard, I will not lie to you, to keep it up. The dream, I will not lie to you, is hard to keep up. Where in this world can I have safe babies? Not me, not my love. We cannot have babies safe in this world. The woman's fingers are sometimes praying, and prayer is a fight, a flight. Sometimes I resent this blonde child and her blondish mother, and I hate this resentment. But God, this mother imagines a safe world for her daughter, and she will be granted it. Her daughter is a safe world I can only imagine. God, I grow weary of the imagination. Thank you very much. Um, I think this might be my favorite poem in the chapbook. Um, you have a really wonderful way of taking turns in a poem, and it feels as though we are on this ride of lefts and rights. And then when the poem is done and we zoom out from it, we see that all of our turns were in this pre-prescribed space, this this world that you created. And I actually don't know anybody that does it like you do. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I um, I was really working to invent some kind of new form with this poem. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really attracted to the guzzle, um, you know, because of its idea of microcosms that work to create this macrocosmic world. Um, you know, it seems to work well for me that I'm someone who thinks in small chunks and someone who digresses, but also someone who sees a bigger picture. Um, and so I was really trying to create some kind of form that would have the attitude of the guzzle, but wouldn't be the guzzle. Um, something that would hopefully move more in the way that a crab skittishes, mm-hmm. right? You know, kind of moving left to right, back and forth simultaneously, um, you know, but something that has a kind of hook and needle aspect to it as well, where those end words on the line come back, um, you know, in different kinds of manifestations, different kinds of connections with each other. Totally. And I just love how your explanation of it was similar to the method itself. That was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so there are um, very specific um, sections of this chapbook. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how they how it uh, came to be divided into these sections? Yeah, it was it was a it was a huge process. Um, Aaron connect, Aaron contacted me and asked me to um, write a book of poems or submit you know a chapbook of poems that has a kind of attitude of the animal poems that had been published in um, Anna Lena Phillips' journal Fringe. Um, you know, and they were poems that were a little philosophical, that had nature at a center, um, that were very meditative. And um, that, you know, was an exciting proposition for me, but it was also very difficult for me to do that work because getting into a meditative headspace isn't very easy for me. Um, you know, because I'm just so busy. Life is just so busy. Mm-hmm. But when I was living with the animal, <laughs> you know, at the time um, we had, it was just us, right? You know, and being in that home that was unfamiliar to me, it was not my home. Mm-hmm. I was surrounded by things that were not my things. I was hanging out with this cat that was not my cat. 
Um, you know, I was really living in this world that was not mine that was being offered up to me. And so because of that, it was very easy for me to enter into this meditative headspace and to write very frequently from that meditative headspace. Um, so I decided instead that I would try to present Aaron with something a little bit more wild and woolly, mm-hmm. um, but something that was also potentially containable in, in sections. Um, and so the, the book was huge. I sent her way too many pages, like 64 pages or something <laughs> of material um, and just kept um, chopping away at it and chopping away at it. Um, you know, but I had these sections in the initial 64 pages, um, you know, and really wanted to think about, um, you know, how to go from this movement of introducing people to my poetics and to my aesthetics um, into, you know, feeling like I was being pierced um, just a little bit at a time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's really what I was thinking about as I was um, constructing the sections for this. The way that you described it is exactly how I experienced it, that I was getting a sampling of your creative processes. Um, and I was very impressed by the first section, which was an actual um, question and answer. I'd love to to show the readers a little bit of that. Can I read you the first question and you can read your answer? Yes. Your writing seems to be concerned with risk, though not consumed by risk. How do you relate to the idea of risk as an aesthetic proposition and also a moral proposition? The artist who is more conventional in their stylings and tones and subject matters may see risk-taking in my poems. I see a tongue constantly trying to detach itself from the mouth of a person whose head is trying to detach itself from the body of a person whose arms each want to go their own way and not the way of the legs. Risk-taking, I'm starting to temporarily believe, truly happens when the art you've made leaves you completely shaken, startled, frightened, floored, falling in the middle of your room, anxious. When I push words around on a page or explode a font or write in the apparently wacky syntax I feel and think in, or fracture or fragment, to insist on these interior behaviors as having a right to live outside of my own head, my own body, that perhaps is a risk, or, as you phrase it, a moral proposition. I've come to detest a behavior, for example, that I've seen some professors exhibit in public spaces, sometimes even creating spaces for this behavior, a need to publicly flog students whose use of standard English is not perfect or correct, an elitist high ground, Look how stupid that phrasing is. Look at how they've misused that apostrophe. Hey, let's make posters that tell you the so-called dangers of not using an apostrophe when you should. Yes, I hope that my grammar continues to unhinge and irk and anger folks. Their behavior is, if nothing else, irresponsible, irregardless of the fact of their job to educate and the requirements of their job to be experts in their field. Correct use of standard English as sub-requirement. You see, I use this word irregardless with purpose to say fuck you to those folks whose pet peeve is the use of a word that is not a real word. That said, I live and experience the world as fragmentary, rupturing, disconnected, muddy. And because I wear glasses for distance viewing, I often see the world as unclear, hazy. The poems that look like my experiences are not risk, although they are aesthetic choices. Risk, I'm starting to temporarily suspect, is not about startling an audience or grabbing a reader by the groin, but about deeply, disturbingly startling the self. Thank you very much. 
I'm so glad that you wrote all of this, and I'm so glad that it's at the beginning of your chapbook. Um, as someone who's dealing with writing nonfiction and, and encountering god-awful moments of devastation, mm. your words resonated with me in all the right ways. Mm. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Um, I wish that we had more time to spend on this book, because we could spend a lot of time. Um, so before <clears throat> it's up, I want to get one more poem in, please. Yes. So for our final poem... Um, I want to break into the first sequence. Would you please read the excerpt from September 3rd, 2013 of Pieces and Piercings on page 20? Yes. You have become the caretaker of an animal. You forget her name and call her the animal. She swishes her tail and races past you. When you bend to pet her, she swipes you. You've been told the animal is a great huntress. Her favorite is the insect they call palmetto bug. Your love for the animal begins like this. You have a great repulsion for the insect. She has a great love for seeing the insect die. You continue to submit your hands to the possibility of swipes. Your hands become a landmine of scars. The animal begins to wait for you on thresholds. You remember she is a huntress, and you subject your feet to her swipe. This time she doesn't swipe. She pushes her head against your leg and you have an ally in the hunt. The first time you witness a kill, your blood enters paralysis, and your breath goes numb. She brings the insect inside from the outside. In her mouth, the insect wiggles. She lays the insect at your feet. You cannot believe this betrayal. You begin to think of the scale of love, how your human love is all-encompassing, how you rub your hand over her fur, Whenever she comes for it, even on the toilet when you want quiet, you give your hand to her. You think of the treats you buy her, the new ways you construct to play with her, old toys, the promises you make her as if she is your child to play with her as soon as you're done with the day's work. Her love, it seems, has something to do with need. Need for a hand on her fur, need for a hand pouring water into her glass, dumping food into her bowl, need for a hand to open a door, a window, so she can run outside and bring the outside in. The insect is on the run, and the animal's fur goes static. She races after it, bats it, takes it in her mouth again and again. She brings it to you, drops it at your feet. Again, your blood, paralysis, breath, a numbing agent. You have forgotten how to speak. You grunt. The insect again runs away. You understand this game will go on all night. An hour later, your fears are realized. The insect again. The animal's mouth. You again, thinking of the scale of love, the scale of fear. Thank you. I was really struck by this sequence, how you were able to express a complicated relationship of love and fear and disgust, everything in between, using yourself, a cat, and a palmetto bug. <laughs> it's really cool. <laughs> and the spider. You know, yeah, and the spider. The spider and those horrible fire ants. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, I always find relationships with animals to be really quite interesting, um, you know, particularly because they don't use words to communicate with us. And, um, and so we're really just kind of grappling to understand what it is that they're thinking or possibly saying or feeling what they want, um, you know, and grappling then with our 
own ability to communicate with them, right? Um, you know, like I have these relationships with all kinds of insects, with flies, for example. You know, there was a fly palm in the chat book as well. Um, you know, that was really just a relationship with these flies that kept entering into my house and sitting on my shoulder and, you know, <laughs> like hanging out with me. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think animals are a really interesting frontier when it comes to writing because um, as much as they are a counter to us, you know, we project our feelings and our thoughts and expectations on them. And they're just mute. I mean, they're, they're either right. mirrors or they bite. I mean, right. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I think that that's really kind of this difficulty, right, is that um, this reluctance that I think some people have in really just saying, yes, I'm projecting my feelings and my thoughts onto these animals um, and that that is making them even more mute than they possibly were to begin with. Right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that that's just really a difficult um, confession for, mm -hmm. for people to make because, you know, we just want these animals to be there for us to be our constant companions. Right. Um, and that they don't have any wants at all, except to eat and drink and play and kill. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. I wish that we had more time to talk about this and, and everything else. Um, but I want to thank you for creating this beautiful chapbook and for sharing your work with us. Thank you so much for the invitation, Jen. I deeply, deeply, deeply appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. This is Jen Fitzgerald with New Books and Poetry, reminding you to support all the arts, but especially poetry. Poetry.